You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are very grateful to welcome back Scott Gillespie, editorial page editor and vice president of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, to talk about the media coverage leading up to the Derek Chauvin trial, what went on behind the scenes during the trial, the decision, and the aftermath. Scott is a UW-Madison Journalism School and Political Science alum, and he was the lead editor on Separate and Unequal, the series of editorials on underfunded Bureau of Indian Education schools that was a finalist for a 2015 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing, and Not This Mine, Not This Location, on the dire risks of proposed mining near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which was a 2020 Pulitzer finalist. Scott has more than 30 years of news reporting and editing experience at newspapers in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Scott joined us last year to talk about a heated summer of protests and election politics in Minnesota and around the nation. We are very happy to be talking to Scott again about media coverage surrounding the historic Chauvin trial and living and working in Minneapolis over the last 11 months. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. First things first, thank you so much for joining us again today, Scott. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's jump right into it. It has been a year in Minneapolis. It's been a long time, and many things have happened since we last spoke. I would really like to start with your interpretation and asking you, you know, like, what are some of the guiding principles that you and the rest of the Star Tribune editorial and and opinion staff really take to heart as you have been covering the craziness of the last year, and especially the craziness of the last two weeks? Well, I'm glad you said opinion. I am in charge of opinion. Uh, I was the managing editor of the paper. So I, my colleagues and news are, uh, people I know well and work with, but we do have that traditional news and opinion separation. However, uh, I will try to do my best to give you perspectives on what on what they were up to. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with how they approached the last year. And really, the I think the guiding principle was to own the story in, in all its um, aspects and all, all the angles. We're the largest news organization in the state and in the region, we have the largest reporting staff, we have the largest photo staff, and the largest opinion staff. That said, Minneapolis and St. Paul is a really remarkable news market where there are um, some excellent online news sources, um, some that are specific to, for example, the Somali community, the um, African American community. And then, you know, we've got News organizations like Axios and the Minnesota Reformer that have just come to town, and they have some very talented people working for them. So they they were on the story as well. But nobody could really, um, you know, nobody does match us in terms of the the amount of talent that we can throw at a story like this. And you know, it was clear to everyone shortly after the video from George Floyd's arrest and what was eventually determined to be murder was posted that we had a a major story on our hands and of course 
that the the initial protests then you know which were peaceful in the beginning turned violent fairly quickly and there was significant damage to our community so then we it became a story not only of what was happening with the Floyd case and the legal um, case but also you know what was happening on the streets and then in addition to that the social justice movement which you know is much broader than Minnesota but we felt it here, I think, maybe even more intensely than other states, and a lot of work on that front and on the diversity and inclusion fronts as well in kind of all aspects of our society. So we wanted to cover all of that, and that was our, our goal and our mission. And also just one other thing to really give a platform to, to, to a variety of voices and some that maybe we hadn't been in touch with much before. And that was true in opinion as well as in news. We had a really interesting conversation last time about the differences uh, that you saw and the similarities uh, between national coverage and the local coverage, regional coverage that you guys provide. What was your assessment this round with how the national news outlets were covering the verdict compared to how you guys approached covering it? I think their coverage was was better. And but I'm gonna also give some credit to the Star Tribune and Minnesota news organizations for pushing very hard for cameras in the courtroom. This was the first case broadcast in Minnesota. And we pushed for that uh, through our attorneys and other news organizations joined us and helped us uh, finance that effort. And you know, kind of a, a number of factors led to that, including COVID. So there were going to be courtroom restrictions on how many people could be in the courtroom at once. So that that led the judge to be, I think, even more open to the possibility of cameras this time and broadcasting this time. A lot of work went into that to make it work well and to hopefully not take anything away from the, the trial itself. To, and from all reports, it went really, really well. So that transparency... I think is what helped the national coverage be better because to, to some to a large extent, a lot of those national reporters were able to see what we could see. They did have a number of people on the ground too, and some really good people, some really good reporters, you know, broadcast people. So um I thought it was I thought it was pretty well done. You, you know, when you live here, you find little things that you think, you know, you realize they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and I'll just say CNN the other day was doing a thing on uh, police involved deaths in Minnesota. And they said that the Philando Castile case had happened in Minneapolis. And it was actually in St. Anthony, which is basically right next to St. Paul. They did this graphic and they had that case being part of Minneapolis cases. So it was wrong. And then sadly for them at the same time, one of their anchors who actually lived part of her life here said, <laughs> said, I'm from, I'm from the Twin Cities. You know, I know that area really well. I know Minnesota really well. And then she went on to say that George Floyd was, uh, was murdered in North Minneapolis. Actually, it was South Minneapolis. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, these are things that happen. It was interesting that she aired in that way because North Minneapolis has been the part of the city with the largest African-American population, probably was when she was here, but that's not as, you know, not as true now. But anyway, overall, thought the coverage was pretty good. You know, a little hyped, like cable news tends to be. 
And I think the Dante Wright case, which I think we're going to talk about here in a, in a minute, that added to the, you know, the anticipation, the buildup, and maybe some of the hyping too. We would love to get into um, the specifics of the trial and the media coverage that led up to the trial. Um, what can you say um, about the media discussion and how you guys cover the jury selection process? Thank you, Addison. First, you know, again, I want to say that a lot of effort went into to getting the cameras in the courtroom and getting that live streaming operation set up and running. And that that was excellent work on the part of our editors and um, uh, the legal team representing a number of news organizations. That was a big part of it. Covering jury, jury selection in more depth than I've ever seen jury selection covered before. You know, all with the caveat that obviously we did not identify those jurors by name. And our news folks wanted to have reporters on this, either in the courtroom or monitoring what was going on in the courtroom at, at all times during that selection process to reflect what kind of jury was getting put together. And, you know, we were looking at some of the same things a lot of the audience was looking at, I'm sure, a lot of the readers and, and, and television, the TV audience, how diverse would the jury be? How do you, how do you find a jury that doesn't, either doesn't know much about this case or can say that they know something about it, but that they can stay, you know, open to either argument, uh, prosecution or defense, which is basically how it boiled down to. You weren't going to find anybody in Minnesota um, who really, who didn't know anything about this case and probably few people nationally. There was the question of whether or not to move the trial. And that was a, you know, a pre-trial motion and the judge decided to keep it in Hennepin County where Minneapolis is located. There was also the issue of whether to sequester the jury during the entire trial, which the judge did not do. That kind of surprised me, I kind of thought he would, especially after he made what was I thought a, you know, really interesting kind of bold decision to keep the process in Hennepin County. I thought he might then turn, kind of go the other way with the sequestration issue, but he didn't. And then, you know, the other big kind of news event during jury selection was the city of Minneapolis's decision to announce the settlement with the Floyd family, make it public. And that was, you know, screaming headlines because it was the largest settlement we've ever seen. They had a giant news conference that did not make the judge happy. In general, as you maybe heard last week, even he was critical of public officials throughout this trial. And even before and before the trial, I'm sorry, before the trial, stating their opinions on the case. And, and he was particularly upset with the timing of the announcement on the settlement. So, you know, those were the kind of the, all the news angles that were covered with the idea that we really wanted to give readers an uh, excellent um, look at, at the jury selection process and where it was leading. And then what it, what it resulted in, who the 14 people were, the 12 uh, jurors who who made the decision and the two alternates. What are your thoughts about how perhaps being on a jur jury like this is more of a heavy lift now than in the past with social media? I can't imagine the pressure of it. Uh, I really think that it's a whole different scenario now. And I give those people, those jurors a lot of credit. And one of the most interesting things I've heard so far post-trial is from the alternate juror. So far, she, to my knowledge, is the only juror who has spoken publicly. She did an interview with us. She did one with the New York Times. She did interviews with a number of uh, television networks or stations 
And she talked about how the jurors took this case so seriously that during breaks and meals, lunches, basically, because they went home at the end of the day, they didn't talk at all about the trial. And in fact, after some of the, during some of the breaks, during some of the most emotional parts of the trial, they would not even make eye contact with each other in the juror room. So, you know, that kind of, to me, paints a picture of the stress they felt, the pressure they felt, and the responsibility they felt. You know, I don't know that anybody who gets into this kind of trial has, could fully grasp, um, you know, the potential risk of their identity being, you know, what, what, what it could mean to them in the future. So, you know, Star Tribune has a policy of pushing for jurors to be identified, but not publishing their names generally unless they come forward and want to talk. I can't speak to exactly what will happen in this case. The judge has decided that he won't give the names of the jurors. They're going to remain under seal for at least six months, possibly longer. In one of our other police-involved deaths in Minnesota, the uh, uh, Justine Damone case, that judge kept the jurors' names uh, under seal for 18 months. So that's, you know, that's unprecedented. That's a really long time. And we're going to keep pushing. I know our lawyers are going to, they've said they will keep pushing for the judge to give us those names because as our lawyer said in a story, we quoted her saying, part of the judicial system and showing readers that the justice system works is knowing who these jurors are. And again, that doesn't mean that we make the decision to identify all of them. But, you know, what will happen when, whenever all those names are released, media organizations, including us, will try to call those people and see if they want to talk. Some of them could talk in the meantime, just like this alternate, alternate juror has. But yes, a lot of pressure. What they got returned was $20 a day stipend. <laughs> and... Um, there's no there's no trauma care built into the system. There's no mental health care built into the system. And uh, I hope that when the judge met with them after the verdict was announced, I hope he, and I bet he did discuss with them, if you feel like you need it, seek it out. So I, yeah, I just can't imagine what the pressure was like. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, you were saying that the decision not to sequester the jury was surprising to you. And I'm wondering, were there other parts of either the court proceedings or the media coverage in general that was surprising? In, the, in terms of the trial itself, Claire, the most surprising thing to me was the how clearly the blue wall came down in this case. And, you know, traditionally in this country, cops stick with cops, not 100% of the time, but it's pretty consistent. And in this trial, you saw the chief, you saw the most experienced detective, you saw the training officers all testify for the prosecution very clearly, and I would say very credibly, and apparently the jury felt very credibly too for the prosecution about, specifically about training and about whether what we saw on that nine minute plus video was what Derek Chauvin was trained to do. Um, you know, and I've met with uh, the chief, Chief Arredondo, a number of times in recent years. 
I wasn't surprised that he was an excellent witness because in meeting with him in a, you know, an editorial board setting at the paper, uh, he's terrific and he's straight shooter and he looks you in the eye and tells you the truth. And, um, you know, I'm not surprised that he was a great witness, but I didn't, you know, pre-trial, I didn't, I knew he, who the prosecution witnesses were, but boy, were that, were they clearly good prosecution witnesses? I wouldn't have necessarily predicted how strong that testimony would be. That was a surprise. Did the verdict surprise you at all? Excellent question. Now, I think when you, you're involved in news and for 40 years now, <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's true. You, you really guard against expecting something, in a, especially in a jury situation. I thought he would be found guilty of manslaughter and second-degree murder. I, I would have bet you that almost for sure. I wasn't sure about the second-degree murder. I probably would have bet yes that he would have, but I, you know, it's tough. And, and I should add that I watched... 95% of the trial, I bet, sometimes doing other things in the background, but tried to watch it all. But, you know, you always have to kind of factor in, if you're a juror, you're in the room, you're there, you're hearing every single word, you're looking at at these witnesses, you know, face to face, you're, you're, you see the defendant uh, not far away, although in this case with a mask on, most, almost, well, all the time that the jury was there. So, you know, a jury can come out of a trial with a little different view of it than necessarily a TV, TV viewer, um, but, but fortunately, you know, I think those of us who saw the live stream and saw a lot of it figured that, you know, it was, all li it was likely that uh, he would be guilty on some counts. We, we, did have a, we did have an editorial, a number of different editorial versions written, depending on the outcome. And now I guess we can kind of jump into uh, maybe what the behind the scenes looked like at the Star Tribune. What 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 kind of you know preparation was going on? Like you said, writing different versions of the story. What kind of like ground preparations there were at all? If there was anything going on behind the scenes? Sure. Yeah, I'll do the best I can with that, given that you know I'm in charge of opinion and not news. But I have a pretty good handle on and what they, what they were doing in news, planning for all eventualities, basically, and continuing to cover the trial as thoroughly as they could, and then really using all of our tools, video, social media. I think there were two or three really good Twitter streams that our people, our reporters who were following the trial were doing that, that were among the best that I saw that you could follow during the trial on what was going on. And then, you know, in terms of getting ready for any eventuality with the verdict and what protests might look like uh, after it. Again, you know, really unpredictable and probably made even more unpredictable because of the Dante Wright case uh, coming literally during the trial, uh, having a police officer uh, shoot and kill him uh, in, in uh, Brooklyn Center, which is just... Uh, basically about a, at a site about 10 miles from the Hennepin County courtroom where the trial was going on. And as you saw, there were, there were some protests there, some of which turned uh, a little bit violent at, late at night only, but really only a couple of nights. And then that got 
tamped down. There were, we were covering the public safety aspects and also the kind of the buildup of law enforcement pretty extensively as well. It was so evident, it was remarkable. The mayor of Minneapolis, the governor of Minnesota and the mayor of St. Paul all got a lot of criticism for their handling of the protests uh, last summer when things turned turned bad, not being ready for it, uh, not responding to it quickly enough. They weren't gonna let that happen again this time. And they and, and so they had, uh, you know, the, the, the National Guard presence was extensive, uh, along with state patrol and uh, city police departments uh, from around the metro, state patrol from other states. I mean, it was uh, pretty remarkable. And then just the physical buildup around the courthouse of fencing and, and uh, you know, nobody was getting in there, that's for sure. Uh, and we tried to cover that, looking at it from a number of different perspectives. There were some people very much welcomed that approach. There were others who thought it was way over the top and that it was intimidating to those who wanted to peacefully protest and who were concerned about how law enforcement might respond to, to protests, if, especially if they uh, you know, became heated. So we tried to get all those voices represented. And I think our reporters did a remarkable job of doing that. But, you know, behind the scenes, you, you just have to plan for anything happening. And I think we have a lot of experience doing that and did it well. The website traffic, when the verdict was announced, we had a spike that was like nothing we've ever seen except the day Prince died. It was on a level of that. And of course, Prince dying was something, it was unexpected. It was, you know, a shock. And and you wouldn't necessarily, well, I mean, other national media outlets were covering it, but they weren't here covering it like we were. So that that's almost almost more expected. I was found it really interesting how much attention we got internationally. My one of my colleagues did two interviews with uh radio in the UK. I became really good friends with a radio station in Perth, Australia, of all places. Uh, so I did two inter two or three, three interviews, I guess, with their big radio show down in, in, in Western Australia. Um, but yeah, which I, and they were, they knew a lot about the case. They weren't coming to it with limited knowledge. They were, they were following it pretty well. So, you know, you really did get the sense of how this this case was followed around the world, not just nationally. Like you were mentioning, Dante Wright, another young black man was killed during the trial, but at a traffic stop in Brooklyn Center, which is close to Minneapolis, but not quite there for people listening. And there were protests after that as well. Were there differences between those protests and protests that happened during the trial or even last summer in June after the killing of George Floyd? And were there differences in how the media in Minneapolis covered it? Yes, there, and, you know, there were protests after the Dante Wright case, uh, after, after we learned of, of his death and after people saw the video uh, of his shooting. It was different in that they weren't as large, the protests weren't as large as last summer. They, um, on the first, I believe, two nights there was some some looting and some fire setting going on in, in a, at a commercial area right next to Brooklyn Center, 
there was a pretty quick effort made by the Brooklyn Center Police Department with help from other law enforcement agencies to secure their building, their main headquarters building, which became the main site of the protests. And there were they were concerned that it, you know, if if they they left it open, that uh, you, you might see something like the precinct that got burned down after you know last summer um, related to the to George Floyd's death. That didn't happen. However, there were exchanges between protesters and cops and other law enforcement where. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not going to say who I think started it, but there were protesters, some, some who were throwing things at, at law enforcement. Then law enforcement came out pretty strong with tear gas and rubber bullets. There were members of the Star Tribune uh, who were injured. Uh, one fairly badly had to have surgery on his hand. He's a multimedia journalist, very skilled, very uh, good one who uh, was, was shot with a rubber bullet in his hand and had to have surgery for the damage done to his finger. You know, I think our editors and lawyer were trying to tell our reporters to take care, to try to stay out of the, the line of fire as much as possible. But the reporters were also trying to tell the story and get a sense of who was really there, who was on the ground, who was doing what. And there were a couple nights there where law enforcement became really aggressive. And then there was a, an instance where they rounded up journalists sometimes having them lay on their stomachs. They started taking photos of journalists' credentials and then their faces. And we, we'd never seen that before. So our lawyer was very busy on the phone with the governor's office and with law enforcement officials. And none of our people got arrested, so she didn't have to deal with that complexity. But we, were, we made it known pretty quickly that that was unacceptable. And, and, that, and then they did apologize for doing that and back down and stop doing it. Now, Brooklyn Center is an interesting city. It has only about 46 police officers, I think. It's got a part-time mayor. It's almost honorary mayor system. And the first news conference they held was a bit of a circus. They let in not just working journalists, but activists as well. And it kind of got out of hand. And the part-time mayor, there was a Longtime city administrator, he quickly fired him, and and then the chief resigned. So it was, um, you know, there was a lot happening in a short time, and the heat built pretty quickly. But but it didn't get to be as big, and I I can't tell you if that's exactly why. Um, circumstances of the cases, maybe maybe the fact that there was so much law enforcement here, and some of those people were taken from downtown Minneapolis and moved up to Brooklyn Center to help out. So, you know, they moved pretty quickly. So in the hours after the Chauvin verdict, early Minnesota coverage of the George Floyd story was criticized nationally and internationally on Twitter and some cable news. What are your thoughts on this initial coverage and how has media coverage of protests and policing changed in Minneapolis? If you saw the police statement, that came out the night of uh, George Floyd's death, it was, uh, let's say, not super accurate. And it certainly wasn't complete. And that's a problem. And however, I don't think, call me defensive if you want to, but I don't think our coverage was 
was bad. In fact, I thought we were really quick to figure out what was going on. And the police reporters we have are well-sourced and, you know, that Darnella Fraser posted her video on Facebook. Uh, and that's how the chief of police first saw it. I believe that's how our reporters first saw it as well. I think we reacted pretty quickly. If we had been there, different story, but we weren't obviously on the scene of it. So then you do rely initially on police. But I think, I think it's a good question, uh, Addison. And I think it's the criticism more broadly about news organizations taking the pol police word as at face value. That's legit. That's a good, that's something that we all journalistically need to learn out of the Floyd case. I know for as long as I do this, I will look at the communication I get from police even more, I'm going to say skeptically. And I like to think that I've always been skeptical, but I'm going to be even more skeptical now. And I hope all reporters are and news organizations are. You do worry about how many cases over the years, because there weren't citizens there video, you know, with, with, with smartphones, how many cases didn't get the coverage they deserved. That said, one of the earliest stories I ever worked on as a reporter was in Milwaukee in 1980, I believe it was 1983. And that was the death of a man named Ernest Lacey, who was an African-American man who was 19 years old, I believe. And he was picked up for a rape that it was later learned that he had absolutely nothing to do with. He wasn't even near it. And he was thrown into a paddy wagon and he was died of a chokehold. Nobody saw it except the cops who were in that paddy wagon with him. But, uh, you know, we extensively at the old, the late great Milwaukee Sentinel, which, as you all know, was merged into the journal to become the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but at the late great Sentinel and at the Milwaukee Journal, we covered that case really extensively and did our best to try to, to you know, uh, push the, push public officials for the real story. But my memory of it is that the officers had very little discipline uh, and certainly nothing like a guilty verdict in a murder case like this one. So anyway, going forward, I hope that media organizations have learned an important, you know, lesson but I think our initial coverage was turned pretty quickly in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Is there something that we haven't talked about today that you think we should have? I wanted to say one other thing about the jury issues and reporting on the jury uh, that we haven't talked about, and even though we did in general talk about jury selection. We did during the trial run a story that was based on what we could say about the jurors based on what them, them talking to the judge in court and also some of their pre-trial questionnaire material. And we put together a story that numbered them and then said where they were from and it gave their race and it gave um, information about some occupation information and then also um, some of what they said about how they would approach being a juror. And Again, didn't identify them by name, but it was interesting to me to learn, I saw it myself with my own eyes, the two reporters who had their bylines on that story got heated uh, criticism on social media to the point where they, I think they, 
they got off of Twitter for a while. They might be back on now. Um, and there were some threats and things, you know, made to them. And, you know, with this particular case, you, you could see threats coming from people on all sides of this issue. Those who thought that Derek Chauvin shouldn't be convicted, as well as those who thought that Derek Chauvin should be convicted. You know, I, I thought it was uh, really at a high volume, considering that these people weren't identified, these jurors weren't identified by name, but it's, uh, it, was, it was scary. And uh, for them, it was intimidating and, and it's not a good thing for our, for our society. I, I would assume our editors will stick with the same policy going forward that we're only gonna give jurors names if they wanna be interviewed. But at the same time, we need to, we need to push for the identities because it's part of the historical record and, and that's our role. And, you know, I didn't think there was anything out of bounds whatsoever about the story they did. I thought it was actually very helpful in understanding who the jury was. It's been such a chaotic and heavy year in terms of politics and news and world events in general. And so we've asked all of our guests to tell us one thing that gives them hope or makes them feel optimistic about something in the future. And it could be something in your personal life or anything related to what we've been talking about today. Because so much of my life has revolved around George Floyd and what's happened since he was killed, I, I'm going to say gives me hope is I thought that that was, that trial was extremely well run. I thought that it showed the best of our justice system. I thought the judge was skillful. I thought the prosecution and defense attorneys were skillful and did the best jobs they possibly could. But most importantly, I thought the fact that it was, people could see it, it was live streamed, it was broadcast, was really important. And I hope, my hope is that like me, that people, that gives people more hope that, that justice can, can be done. And uh, now I say that, and there will be probably post-trial uh, appeals. Maybe one of those will be successful on some error made during this trial that I don't, I didn't pick up on yet, but I don't think so. I think that, uh, I think this showed the system doing what it should do. And uh, that, that gives me hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>